If you have your Bibles this morning, I hope you do, I'd like you to turn to John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1. Her name was Nina. She was one of many names and many luminaries that graced the pages of church history. Nina, according to the historian Rufinus, who lived in the 5th century, Nina lived early in the... uh, I believe it was early in the 4th century. She lived in a country at the time that was called Cappadocia, which is now part of Turkey. And according to church history, as a young woman, probably a teenager, she was taken as a slave, taken to a country at that time called Iberia, which is now called Georgia. Georgia, you may or may not know, is seated right with uh, Europe to the north and Asia to the south. <clears throat> on the east side of the Black Sea. Anyway, this young girl was taken as a slave to Iberia during the reign of a man named Mirian III, king of Iberia. Uh, She apparently impressed people with her faith. She was a devout Christian, and her godliness and her faith impressed people, even though she was a slave, Uh, to the point that uh, at some point in time a uh, mother... Have, that had a baby that was very, very sick, brought this baby to Nina and said, would you pray for my baby? Maybe your God will heal this baby. And so Nina took this baby, wrapped it in her cloak and prayed for it. And lo and behold, the baby revived, was healed. The word got around about that. In fact, word made it all the way up to the queen of Iberia, whose name was Nana, who was suffering from some chronic illness. She thought she'd look up this slave girl, and she did. And she asked Nina, would you pray to your God for me? And Nina prayed for this queen, and this queen recovered. She was cured. Pretty amazing. Now, the queen's husband, Miriam, was impressed, but um, didn't want anything to do with this. It's kind of like a lot of guys, you know, well, that's your religion. You can have it, your, your new faith, because this queen was quite excited about her new faith in Jesus Christ. But the king at that time rejected it. <clears throat> However, sometime later, he was on a hunting trip, and um, a heavy mist came in, according to some historians. Uh, another historian said it grew suddenly very dark, And he lost his way. Now, the fascinating thing is, according to historians and scientists, there was a solar eclipse back about 3, I think it's 324, 327 AD, just about this time. There was an actual solar eclipse, and maybe that's what happened. We don't know. Whatever the case was, he was lost. He was trapped, as it were, in this dark mist out hunting, lost his way. And he called out to the God of his wife. He said, maybe this God will help me. And he vowed that he would put his trust his faith in this God, if this God would get him out of the situation. And lo and behold, the mist, darkness cleared, made his way home. Now the king and queen are both excited believers in Jesus Christ. They didn't know much. They took the slave girl and she began instructing them in the ways of the Lord about Jesus Christ. They began to tell their countrymen about it. In fact, the king actually sent word to Constantine, the ruler of the Roman Empire, to please send us bishops and priests to bring this new religion, this faith in Jesus Christ to our country. And that's the way that Christianity came to Iberia by the third century and has remained so. All because of a little slave girl. 
kind of a lonely voice in the wilderness, so to speak, in a spiritual wilderness. She was faithful and became a voice to those people. And let me ask you this morning, how's your voice this morning? (laughs) Well, let's look at John chapter 1, and we'll see about another voice. I'm going to begin reading in verse 19. And if you'd like to stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God, uh, let's stand together. I'll be reading from verse 19 down to verse 28. The testimony of John the Baptist. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. That's the Greek Christos, Messiah. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him then, Why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, you are truly great. In fact, your greatness no one can even begin to fathom. You own the day and the night. You rule over all things. You know the end from the beginning and yourself are without beginning and without men, without an end. Father, we thank you that you have loved us, such a phenomenal thing, because you've said that um, we are but dust and we return to dust. We're but a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes, and yet you've said that you've made us a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned us with glory and honor. We're fearfully and we're wonderfully made. What a contrast that is. And we thank you that you've reached down and sent your son, Jesus Christ, into this darkened world to bring light and have called us to be small lights that the world might see and understand that there is a Savior that lives within us. Father, may we be faithful. May we be, uh, as it were, a voice in the wilderness. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can all be seated. Now, just by way of reminder, I mentioned a few weeks ago that there is a history of revelation among the Jews. Revelation meaning God revealing himself through a natural revelation, nature. It's a creation that had to be creator, but also through a special revelation by um, different individuals in the Old Testament, prophets as it were. And there's almost a continuous amount of revelation from the time of Abraham, who lived about what, three, 4,000 years ago, all the way up to, uh, to the last prophet of the Old Testament, which is Micah, the last book in the Old Testament. Continuous revelation, God speaking through his prophets, as it were, uh, and then all of a sudden there's silence, 400 years of silence. And during that period, the Jews came under the rule of the Greeks, a very wicked man by the name of, uh, by the name of Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes ruled for a while. Uh, there was a revolt among the Jews and the Maccabees uh, took the country back for the Jews. But then the Romans came in and they conquered and uh, ruled Palestine. And all during this 400 years, there was no prophetic word. And then suddenly there burst upon a scene this prophetic voice 
just shattered the silence in the wilderness. John the Baptist, a real strange character, prophetic character. Uh, the common people were enthralled by John. I mean, he was something to look at. Uh, the book of Matthew says that he wore, uh, he lived in the wilderness, he wore camel hair. I'm not sure exactly what that looks like. And he essentially uh, lived on a diet of candied grasshoppers. It said he lived on locust and wild honey. Locusts are like grasshoppers, okay? Wild honey meaning he had to go gather the honey. He probably got stung a lot. And, you know, how else are you going to be able to put a grasshopper down, dip it in honey, I guess. But So he was kind of a curious character. He was a very uh, prophetic voice, preaching repentance and all that. And the common people were just absolutely amazed and enthralled. They, they came by the, by the crowds to hear this guy, but the leadership was a little bit concerned. Now you had the two main leadership then were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees were the theological liberals. They didn't believe in heaven. You know, they didn't believe in angels. And as somebody said, that's why they were sad, you see. Uh, they were concerned because this guy was, was attracting people and they were afraid that he was going to stir up some kind of a rebellion and that they were going to get in hot water with the Romans and the soldiers. And so the Sadducees were, well, they had some very political concerns. Now, the Pharisees, on the other hand, had more theological concerns. What kind of impact is this guy having? Preaching about repentance. Why is he baptizing because Jews didn't baptize Jews back then. You, the, only, the only people that were baptized were proselytes. Gentiles that wanted to convert to Judaism were baptized. And by the way, Jews didn't baptize them. They were told to baptize themselves. Okay? Now you got a guy who's baptizing Jews. Why? God's people don't need to be baptized, do they? And so the Pharisees are going, wait a minute, you're baptizing Jews and you're baptizing? It didn't make any sense. So they were concerned about this guy, what kind of theological, what kind of spiritual impact he's going to have in the country. And so the, the leaders were sending people to check this guy out, to check out John's credentials. Who are you? Who do you think you are? And that's exactly what they asked him. And so it says here, this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not uh, deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Because people were wondering, is this the Christ? Is this the Messiah that we've been looking for, that's been prophesied for centuries? John says, I am not the Christ. He said he denied that. Well, secondly, he was not Elijah, because they were also expecting Elijah, the Old Testament prophet, kind of like John, rough and tumble sort of a guy. They were expecting him because in Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, we read this prophecy. Deuter um, let's see if I can find it here. Okay, Malachi 4 or 5 says, Behold, God speaking, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. So they're thinking, well, maybe he's he looks like, kind of like an Elijah camel hair, wild, you know, locust, wild honey and so forth, that manner of preaching, pretty strong, abrasive sort of guy. Um, in Luke chapter 1, John's father was told by the angel that his son, John, would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Not Elijah, the person himself, but coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah. In fact, uh, Jesus said that John was... Um, 
Elijah-like. Let me just read this to you over in Matthew chapter 17. Jesus is speaking about John the Baptist. The disciples asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Jesus answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at the hands. So there was this idea that Elijah was going to come. Uh, Jesus essentially confirmed the fact that John the Baptist was like Elijah coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. So he wasn't the Christ. He wasn't Elijah, they said, are you the prophet? And what are they talking about, the prophet? Well, Moses mentioned that someday there would arise a prophet. Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. But John said, I'm not that prophet. And in fact, Jesus Christ himself was the fulfillment, was that prophet talking about so they said, well, if you're not uh, the Christ, if you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet, just who do you think you are? What are your credentials? Verse 22, John finally answers them. Well, they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? What are your credentials? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way, straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. John says to them, I'm a voice. In fact, I'm the voice that was prophesied back in Isaiah chapter 40. Let me read that to you. Isaiah, written, what, 700 years before this. In Isaiah chapter 40, it says, A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. You know, back in the old days, in ancient, ancient Eastern roads were pretty pathetic. They were just tracks. But whenever a king was about to visit a province, whenever a conqueror was going to be going through um, uh, one of his domains, ahead of him, the road would be smoothed out and level, to make way for the king, to make way for the conqueror. This is what Isaiah is talking about. And this is what John says, I'm a voice. I'm the guy that's leveling out the road. Don't look at me. King's coming. And who's the king? The king was the Messiah. The king was Jesus. John realized that his purpose was not to promote himself, but to prepare the way of the guy that was coming after him. Okay, and that was going to be obviously the Lord Jesus Christ. John knew who he was. He knew why he had come, and he was saying, uh, in effect, look, I'm just a voice. Get ready for the king. Look to him. Now, let me ask you this morning, just who do you think you are? Just who do you think you are? Because how you see yourself... How we see ourselves has eternal consequences, has eternal implications. And what do I mean by that? Well, you, you, th you think of what, what the world puts value on. See, the world around us wants to look at our credentials when they meet us. Just who do you think you are? 
And what does the world put a premium on? Well, education, right? Uh, degrees, uh, su success, wealth, prosperity, fame. Those are the kind of credentials that the world looks, up, looks at. Your and my identity, who we are, just who we think we are, is tied up in that. It's, it's tied up in, uh, in our family. Well, I'm of the clan of, you know, McTavish or whatever. I'm, I'm of the descendants of so-and-so. I am somebody special because of my family. Or I am somebody special because of uh, my work. I find my identity in my career, in my job. Or I find my identity um, in my possessions. Now, none of these things in and of themselves are wrong. But if you put your identity in those things, they don't last very long. They're only temporary, right? It's only temporal stuff that the world looks at, not stuff that's lasting. Now, some of you may remember, if you're old enough, this um, commercial. It was a beer commercial on television. A bunch of guys sitting around a campfire after a day of fishing, you know, wearing their flannel jackets and blue jeans, sitting around a fire and they're drinking. I forget the kind of beer that they were drinking. But they'd been fishing that day and they're probably eating their fish and drinking their beer. And, um, and, and one of the guys says, fellas, it just doesn't get any better than this. Thank you. <laughs> I knew there was going to be somebody in here that knew what kind of beer it was. And, and the, commercial, the commercial says this. This is so temporal, worldly. You only go around once, so grab for all the gusto. What's this saying? You only live once, so make the most of it, right? And I remember hearing a lecture or a sermon by a <clears throat> guy named Mark Coppinger, who was president of Mid-America Mid Baptist Seminary. He said, you know, to the spiritually lost, it's, it's true. It probably never gets any better than beer and fish. Temporal stuff doesn't last. But think about that. Just who do you think you are? Because the real answer to that question doesn't depend on your profession or your family background or some kind of status, but it really depends on how you and I see ourselves in kind of the bigger scheme of things, the universe. The kind of questions that are answered with, who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? John knew those things. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Those are the questions that, that really make a difference. And I was thinking about that because uh, I mentioned before that there are three major worldviews. There is pantheism, <clears throat> pan meaning all, theism meaning God, all is God, all is one. There is theism, belief in God, one God. And there's atheism, non-belief in God. You don't believe in God. God doesn't exist. Now you think about those worldviews and how they would answer those major questions of identity. Let me just... Let me just read. This is what I came up with. Pantheism. Who are you if you're a pantheist, if you've bought into Eastern religions? You are an insignificantly small part of the cosmos, a soul trapped in a virtually endless cycle of birth, death, and rebirth. Your status in each life, whether living in misery or prosperity, 
whether living as a human or an animal, whether you progress or regress in the next life is all determined by your karma. Now, karma is the good or bad actions from your previous life. So, suffering in this life is just is a just compensation for what a person did in a former life. I like how somebody put it. They said, karma means you can rest at night knowing that everyone you treated badly had it coming. <laughs> now, the problem is that you cannot remember who you were or what you did in the previous life, so that you cannot learn from any mistakes you made, and you may just repeat them over <clears throat> and over again with each successive life. As Walter Martin used to say, like being turned on a giant spit. Your goal or ultimate end, when or if you ever reach it, is to be absorbed into the great oneness of the universe where all that is personally you will cease to exist. Your self-identity will dissolve like a drop in an ocean. That's who you are. What about atheism? Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? How do I answer these questions if you're an atheist? Now, I can't do any better than author Randy Alcorn, so I'm quoting from him. You are, the, if you're an atheist, this is what you believe about yourself, you are the descendant of a tiny cell of primordial protoplasm that washed up on the ocean beach three and a half billion years ago. You are the blind and arbitrary product of time, chance, and natural forces. Your closest living relatives swing from trees and eat crackers at the zoo. You are a mere grab bag of atomic particles, a conglomeration of genetic substance. You exist on a tiny planet in a minute solar system in an obscure galaxy in a remote and empty corner of a vast, cold, and meaningless universe. You are flying through lifeless space with no purpose, no direction, no control, and no destiny but final destruction. You are purely a purely biological entity, different only in degree but not in kind from a microbe or amoeba. You have no essence beyond your body, and at death you will cease to exist entirely. In short, you came from nothing, you're going nowhere, and you will end your brief cosmic journey beneath six feet of dirt where all that is you will become food for bacteria and rot with the worms. <clears throat> well, that's your self-identity. What about Christian? What about you and me? What if we're followers of Jesus Christ? How do we answer the question, who am I? Why am I here? What am I doing? You are a person who was conceived in the mind of God before the universe existed, created in his image and predestined to reflect his glory for all time. <clears throat> you have been saved and secured and adopted into the family of God, not by the uncertainty of your performance, but simply through faith and by his unmerited favor. You are of infinite value, having been purchased with the priceless blood of God's own Son, Jesus Christ, and given the high calling of being His witness during this lifetime. Upon your physical death, you will continue to consciously exist as yourself, but in a perfect sinless state of being, in a perfect physical body, and dwelling in an inconceivably glorious physical place with your loving Creator for all time. Just who do you think you are? This idea of value and worth, the Bible kind of portrays it as sort of a dichotomy. Let me, let me share what I mean. Look at John here. John says uh, that he saw himself 
as a mere bond slave. Okay, let me back up a little bit here. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Now listen to this. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. You see, back in those days, if you were a disciple of a rabbi, like Jesus or somebody, if you were a disciple, you were a gopher. Go for this, go for that. You ran errands for your rabbi. You brought him his meals. You prepared his household. You, you were a servant uh, to your, not only did you listen to his teaching and adopt his teaching, but you did all kinds of things for him. But only a slave dealt with their sandals, took their sandals off, washed the feet. In other words, a disciple did all kinds of things to serve their master, but they would not, and they were not supposed to lower themselves to actually dealing with their feet, their sandals. That was meant for a slave, okay? And what does John say? John says, speaking about Jesus, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. John is saying, I am less than a disciple. I am less than a slave. A slave would at least untie his sandals. John is putting himself just about as low as you could possibly go. Hmm. Just who do you think you are? John would say, I am less than a bond slave. And yet, John was born of the priestly caste. In fact, Jesus said that there was no man born of woman greater than John. Let me read that to you. I, I always wondered about that passage in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. Um, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Now listen, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now let that soak in for a minute. <clears throat> First of all, the fact that of men born of women up until that time, no one was greater than John. Wow, that includes Abraham, Samuel, David, Moses, Elijah. None of these guys were as great as John. By the way, a lot of these, some of these guys did miracles. John never did a miracle. And yet, yet Jesus is saying, nobody's, nobody's greater than John. And I look at John dressed in camel hair, eating candy grasshoppers and preaching, and I say, well, what made him so special? And what most scholars agree is what they're talking about here, John was the greatest in seeing and prophesying the coming Messiah. Because you see, the revelation about the Messiah kind of started simple with the prophets. And as time went by, the prophecies began being more and more clear, more and more crystallized until John, who was literally the last Old Testament prophet, the prophet leading up to Jesus, he preceded Jesus, but only by a matter of months, right? And John had the clearest most unambiguous vision and prophecy about Jesus Christ of any of the prophets because he was closest. He had all the prophecy before him and he actually got to see Jesus. So he was the greatest. And then the second part of that is that those who are part of the kingdom of heaven are greater than John. That's you and me if we trust Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. You say, I'm greater than John the Baptist who's greater than all these other people? How is that possible? 
Well, you probably dress better than he does. You probably eat better than he does. But look, they were all looking toward, forward to, to Jesus, right? And they, they had some ideas, bits and pieces, and John had the clearest view. You and I look back. We have an absolutely clear picture of Jesus and why he came and the gospel. And in that sense, you and I are greater than John and all the people that preceded him because we have a full vision of who the Messiah is and who the Messiah was. Pretty amazing, isn't it? But you see this contrast. John sees himself lower than a slave, you know. Just a voice, nothing but a voice. Are you one of these great people? No, I'm just, just, just a voice. And yet you see the greatness of John. You think about the Apostle Paul. Paul had the same idea about that. Listen to Paul. Listen to the dichotomy. You know what a dichotomy is. Something held in contrast, right? Two things in contrast. Listen to what the Apostle Paul, you see, uh, you see the, the bigness and the smallness, the greatness and the leastness, okay? <laughs> Philippians chapter 3, verse 4, Paul is speaking about himself. And he says, I myself have confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, if anybody's got worldly credentials, hey, I got them by the buckets. Listen to, listen to what he says. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. In other words, he was a law keeper. As to zeal, persecuting the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Man, I was something. He was the rising star among the Jews at that day. And he lists all of these credentials. This is who I am. And then he says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. <clears throat> Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing <clears throat> worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them, I count these credentials as rubbish, garbage, compared to knowing Christ, that I may found in him, be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, because Paul couldn't perfectly keep the law. You remember he says, yeah, I kept the, all the law, except there, he stumbled at that one point, which happened to be covetousness. But anyway. And so Paul says, knowing Christ, knowing his resurrection, is so much better than all these worldly credentials that I consider them dung, rubbish. What a contrast. Look at the nature of mankind. You and I are part of creation that has fallen, um, lost, sinful. Paul says to the, uh, to the Ephesians, he says, as for you, you were objects of wrath before you came to Christ. Sinful, fallen, darkened, and yet were made in the image of God. That image may be like a statue. It may be broken, defaced, cracked, and all that, but human beings, as bad as they are, still maintain the image of God. That's a dichotomy. It's almost like a contradiction. We are worth something. We, we are way above the animal kingdom because the animals are not made in the image of God. Sorry, Peta. Sorry, all of these radical animal groups that think that animals are worth the same as people. We're not. We're special. We're made in the image of God. They're not. Think about even Christians, the nature of us Christians, dichotomous. 
Once we were objects of wrath, then we were redeemed. Once we were lost, now we are of immeasurable value. And yet the Bible says in and of ourselves you can do nothing. Well, that's kind of a downer, isn't it? In and of myself, my flesh, now we may do a lot of things, but in and of ourselves, we're nothing. We can do nothing in and of ourselves of any kind of eternal lasting value in the eyes of God. But then the Bible says, but in Christ, we can do what? All things. You can do nothing. You can do all things. What a contrast. And in Ephesians, it says, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are God's workmanship. I've said before, the word there is poema. It's the word we get poem or poetry from. As lost as we were, as fallen as we were, in Christ Jesus, God has made us his poetry. Something beautiful. Francis Schaeffer said this. He said, no work of art is more important than the Christian's own life. And every Christian is called upon to be an artist in this sense. He may have no gift of writing, no gift of composing or singing, but each man has the gift, and each woman obviously, has the gift of creativity in terms of the way he or she lives his life. In this sense, the Christian's life is to be an artwork. The Christian's life is to be a thing of truth and also a thing of beauty in the midst of a lost and despairing world. You and I are poetry. We are artwork. We are being painted right? And at some point in time, your life is going to end and God's going to put the final little brush mark and the painting's going to dry and that's you, okay? But he's still painting the picture, at least as far as I can tell for everybody here. So, what about our credentials, our identity? The best credentials you and I have as Christians, <clears throat> as a witness in the world, It's not a theological degree. You don't need that kind of credential. In fact, when I was in college and I was in a fraternity house of about 65 guys and there were probably five guys in that fraternity house that were genuine Christians. They made an impact on me. They made an indelible impression on me. I used to argue with them. I used to belittle them. And they didn't have the kind of answers to the questions I asked them, but there was something genuinely different about their life. And I looked at their life and I saw the kind of struggles that they were going through, that other guys went through, and how they handled themselves. Didn't matter to me that they didn't have a theological degree. They were a voice in that fraternity house. Hmm. Do you realize that 75% of people that come to faith in Christ come to faith through friends, not pastors, not theologians. 75% come through friends. That means you and I need to be that voice. And uh, John mentioned this last week in terms of our identity, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is who you and I really need to see ourselves like, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul says, talking about being new creations in Christ, you know, He says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. We we don't look at people like other people look at people. You know, they're born, they live, they die, and that's it. We don't see people that way anymore. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Did you get that? He's entrusting the message of reconciliation, the gospel, to you and to me. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Do you see yourself as an ambassador for Jesus Christ? When Paul wrote this, there were two kinds of ambassadors in the Roman kingdom. There were certain countries that Rome had gone in, taken over, conquered, whatever. They were perfectly happy about that. Maybe because they were weak. Now the Romans brought the soldiers in to protect them. Romans made roads. You know, Pax Romana, they brought peace to an area. And some of these countries just thought, oh, that's great, right? And if you were an ambassador to those countries, it's a pretty neat deal because they loved you. You were a senatorial ambassador. But then there were other countries that had been conquered by Rome, like Palestine. They hated the Romans. They resented them being there. Sometimes your life was in danger because they hated your guts. You were an imperial ambassador. There were the imperial countries, hated the Romans, senatorial provinces, countries that loved them. And you were either one or the other. You know, our country used to be, if you were a Christian 50 years ago even, maybe even 40 years ago, we were in a senatorial kingdom. If you were a Christian, you were a senatorial ambassador. It's pretty nice being a Christian. Everybody thought going to church, reading your Bible, Christians were pretty neat people. We've changed in the last 40 years particularly. I believe we are now in, uh, and we are now imperial ambassadors. We are living in a culture and a society that is becoming increasingly hostile to believers. But we are still here as ambassadors to represent our King of Kings and our Lord of Lords. When you and I really first and foremost see ourselves not as somebody's family, not as a carpenter or a teacher or a banker or whatever you do, but instead, first and foremost, you get up in the morning realizing I am ambassador for Jesus Christ. And when I go to my place of work, when I go to school, I am there first and foremost as an ambassador representing my Lord. And I love what our friend Jerry Larson says, we are ambassadors of Jesus Christ cleverly disguised as a student, as a carpenter, as whatever. Do you see yourself that way? Whatever you do, whoever you think you are, I'm an ambassador cleverly disguised as whatever you are and whatever you do. You're a voice. You have a message, Paul says, a life-giving message, the gospel. It's not just the message. Remember a few weeks ago I said, you know, the ancient Greeks had three ways of communicating. You had to have all three to be effective. You had to have a word, a message, logos, something to say. You also had to have ethos. You had to be ethical. You had to have an admirable lifestyle. Hopefully people look at you and say, I would like to be like that person. Boy, look how they handle difficult situations. They're not absolved from suffering, 
difficulty. But look how they handle that. Logos, ethos, pathos. Sympathy, empathy. You love people. You love people. You're an ambassador. Ambassador for Jesus Christ. A little slave girl was one small voice in a spiritual wilderness. And she brought Christianity to a whole nation. Why? Well, because she used her voice, didn't it? She used it. Whatever you do as an ambassador of Jesus Christ, your one small voice is going to have a rippling effect. You never know that when you do anything in the name of Jesus Christ, how that's going to impact this person, who will impact this person, who will impact this person, and the ripple goes out. And God is glorified. So just who do you think you are? Above all, you're a voice. And in the eyes of God, that's enough. Now, some of you have heard this illustration, but it's a great one, about the old violin. Dusty old violin at an auction. Auctioneer holds up this old violin, wants to know, I mean, it looks pretty bad. Who'll give me $5? Who'll give me $10? What about, you know, 20? And, you know, think, you know, nobody wants. And all of a sudden, an old man stands up, it's at the auction, comes up, says, let me have that for a minute. This old guy tunes the violin, you know, and starts playing it. And all of a sudden, this incredible music flows from this old violin. Whoa! Gives the violin back to the auctioneer. He says, who'll give me 100 bucks? Who'll give me 300? Who'll give me five? Who'll give me $1,000? Now, what's the difference between $10 and $1,000? The difference was that old violin was put into the hands of a master violinist. Have you put your life into the hands of God? Have you really surrendered to the Lord? One of the most difficult decisions I ever made after I became a Christian was surrendering my future to the Lord. What's God going to do to me? Going to take my money away? As if I had any money, I didn't at the time. Going to change me? Here's the loving God, and I'm afraid I'm going to give my life into him as if God's going to look at me and say, I'm glad you did that because now I'm going to make your life as miserable as I possibly can. I mean, that's the way we think. I'm sorry. Be that old violin. Put yourself into the hands of the master. Be a voice. I was taking care of my son the other day. Some of you know he's, um, uh, he's immobilized, paralyzed. And, uh, but anyway, the radio is playing Christian, contemporary Christian music, which I can only handle for a while. But anyway, um, but, but these words caught my attention. It's, um, it was the group's Casting Crowns, and, the, and the, uh, the song was called Thrive. Listen to this. Just to know you and make you known, we lift your name high. Shine like the sun, make darkness run and hide. We know we were made for so much more than ordinary lives. It's time for us to more than just survive. We were made to thrive. Are you thriving? You don't feel like you're thriving. Put yourself into the hands of the maker and become another voice. Just a voice. That's all God wants, right? Let's pray. Lord, I can't remember whether it was Spurgeon or somebody else that said, no man has ever seen what you could do to a person that fully puts their lives in your hands. But I pray this morning in Jesus' name that 
uh, those of us that are here at whatever place we are in our spiritual walk would continue to yield to you, to put our lives in your hands. And so, Lord, I just want to pray that prayer. Lord, I give you myself. I trust you with my future. I trust you with this difficult situation that I'm facing, and I know it's going to be hard. But, Lord, I pray that you would make something out of my life. Let me become, in a manner of speaking, like that slave girl, one insignificantly small voice that made a huge difference in a country. Uh, we don't have those kind of aspirations necessarily, Lord, but we do pray that you would use us in ways that we have never even been able to comprehend for your glory and for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, and again, if you'd like to pray with somebody, we've got some folks over here that love to pray for you. If you've never received Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior, they can help you with that and any other kind of prayer need that you have. God bless you and have a wonderful week.